0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network. This is a special series on third world nationalism. In the wake of a rise of nationalism around the world and its general condemnation by liberals and the left, we have put together this series on third world nationalism to nuance the present discourse on nationalism, to note its centrality to anti-imperial anti-colonial politics around the world, and its inextricability from mainstream politics in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Caribbean. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Megu. I also host my own podcasts, Independent Thought and Freedom, and also a story club, Global Politics and Global Cultures. It can be found on the sidebar of the NBN website. Today, my guest is Christopher Lee, Editor of the collection Making a World After Empire The Bandung Moment and Its Political Afterlives, published in 2019, the second edition, by Ohio University Press. Welcome, Christopher.
0: Thank you, Kirk.
1: All right, well, I'm joining you from uh, Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean. And I yeah, I just found out, I made a mistake when I heard Lafayette. I thought it was in Louisiana, but uh, but where are you joining us from?
0: Uh, Eastern Pennsylvania. So okay. far from Louisiana and, and also far from the Caribbean.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, actually, you know, historically, part of the triangular trade and everything, it was uh, very integral, you know, Boston, New York. Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure about Philadelphia itself. But certainly part of the old 13 colonies, uh, yeah, there's a a very strong connection there.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. So can you start by uh, giving us a little bit of a background to yourself and and what got you interested in the topic of the Bandung moment?
0: Uh, Sure. So uh, this (laughs) this goes back maybe uh, close to two decades now. Um, I, I have a PhD in African history. Mm-hmm. Um, I did my graduate work at, at Stanford University in California. And uh, my, my academic specialization, my doctoral specialization was in Southern African history. So, wow. uh, I, you know, very much anchored in a kind of area studies approach. Um, and I was particularly interested in South Africa. I went to South Africa in 1995, so for the first time, so approximately a year after the end of apartheid. um, I was very interested in the politics of the region, and uh, I ended up doing my doctoral work in Malawi, um, as well as Zimbabwe and Zambia, which resulted in another book project. But towards the end of my doctoral uh, research, And maybe this is common among, uh, ABD students, but your mind starts to, to wander. And what I mean by that is that you get tired of the doctoral research that you've been working on and you started thinking about other topics and, and to make a long story short, um, at that, during that late period of, of my, uh, doctoral career, I learned about, uh, the Asian African conference in, in Bandung, Indonesia, 1955. And, uh, I learned about it from another scholar, Barbara Harlow, who was a professor of literature at the University of Texas at Austin. And uh, long story short, it sort of snowballed from there. I became very interested in in the topic and the sort of challenge it presented to the area studies paradigm, uh, which I mentioned earlier. And I should say too that, excuse me, that at the time that I became interested in this event, this diplomatic conference. It was, it was very much a time in African studies, but also, I would say, area studies more generally, where there was a lot of attention to colony-metropole interactions. So try, essentially trying to bring um, uh, the cultures of the metropole and the cultures of, of colonialism together into a single analytic framework. Some scholars saw this as the as as a kind of return to empire. Um, others saw it as as uh, you know framed in a Wallersteinian mode of, of the periphery speaking to a, a global center. Um, but the upshot is that you had a lot of scholarship, and I'm thinking in particular scholarship by Frederick Cooper mm-hmm. uh, and Laura Stoller, that was that was marking these connections. Um, what was interesting to me about the Bandung Conference?
1: Oh, sorry, would yeah. you in- include Apodora um, in that or not?
0: Uh, I would include. Well, his book um, Modernity at Large. Yeah. I would say is that if, if that's what you're you're thinking yeah. of. I would say certainly was part of that discourse. Yeah. Um, of course, Apodora is an anthropologist, and he was dealing more with contemporary globalization. But certainly, um, you know, there was this. Uh, attention to circuits of knowledge, um, the circulation of certain worldviews and practices. Um, Actually, another edited book that that I'm thinking of in particular is the edited volume that Stoller and Cooper put together called uh, Tensions of Empire, that Mm -hmm. basically was making certain arguments about how modernity wasn't something that uh, was established in Europe and then exported to the colonies. But um, in fact, modernity was a co-creation of the metropolitan colony. And in some instances, uh, modern practices and therefore uh, certain forms of modernity were, um, in a sense, created or, or uh, innovated in the colonies and then exported back to Europe. Well, we can so, tell
1: you a lot about that from the Caribbean.
0: Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> but, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the Caribbean yeah. is a perfect example of yeah. of that kind of uh, dynamic. Yeah, and I we, should we say were too, an that, export, you know,
1: an import-export economy from the beginning. Before in, yeah. in industrial capitalism happened in Europe, the the, the plantation, the sugar absolutely. plantation, yeah, was part yeah, so, of that. Yeah,
0: yeah. So the the so certainly Cooper and Stoller were building upon the ideas of 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 Caribbean intellectuals like C.L.R. James, mm-hmm. um, like Eric Williams, um, mm-hmm. the work of, of Sidney Mintz, mm-hmm. um, but I would also say that you know the the recent work of Edward Said, um, yep. particularly culture culture and imperialism, which basically had this you know sweeping framework of uh, European culture and and basically making the argument um, that's become common sense that you know European culture. Uh, you know, wasn't just rooted in in Europe, but was shaped and and mutually constituted with its overseas colonies. Mm-hmm. So, so to go back to, to to my project and the the Asian African conference, um, there there as when I was in when I was a graduate student, there was a tremendous amount of attention to these metropole colony relations, and and um, you know something that I was very immersed in and and committed to. Um, but the the Bandung Conference suggested something different. That is to say, the the dialogue, the interaction um, between between colonies and between former colonies. And so, what attracted me to the project was this 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 case study, um, this event. So, in a sense, a very sort of classical historical element, the single event that brought together. Um, mutual sets of interests um, between Asian and African countries, and suggesting a South-South dialogue, as opposed to a North-South dialogue, or again a, a metropole-colony dialogue. Um, so that's what attracted me to this event, and uh, you know, it's it's gone on from there. Um, and I should say too that that uh, the book, the first edition of the book, came out in twenty ten. Mm -hmm. Um, it was based on a conference that was, that I organized at the Stanford Humanities Center in 2005. So, uh, you know, it was a project that Jess stated for some time. Um, it wasn't, and you know, as, as you might expect, uh, you know, learning about a new topic, doing research on a topic takes time. Um, so yeah, it was it was roughly you know over almost a ten year period that the that the book came into being, and uh, but yeah, it's 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 it found an audience and has had success, which explains the second edition that came out last year in twenty nineteen.
1: Well, that that's great, and and there are a couple things in your story that I'd like to um,
0: sure absolutely
1: yeah to elaborate on. Uh, it, it's it's interesting when you um, talk about how how you learned learned about it um because it's that's it sounds similar to the origin of this series as well you know because in in speaking with marshall from um, uh, the founder of new books network um uh we were t- talking about so somebody's so a listener was was critiquing um my giving a platform or something to nationalists or whatever and, and i was telling them i you know, i i'm a third world nationalist and and he thought it was a joke, <laughs> in a sense. And, I said, and he, he wasn't even aware of, of the whole thing, which is why he said, you know, you re- when I started to speak to him, he said, you really have to do a series about it. What? And I found it fascinating, you know, because it, it's so central to our yeah. thinking of our, our history and ourselves, and, and it's yet so unknown or broad. And so so I found it interesting when you said, you know, it's something you, you learned about late uh, and, um, so I, I, would just like to, sure. you know, to, for you to sort of reflect on that for us and, and, you know, maybe how it might've changed your perspective or challenged, you know, yeah. your area studies, uh, paradigm or, or whatnot. That'd be interesting.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've, i can, uh, answer that in several ways. Um, I mean, one thing, let, let me provide one, one, one approach. Um, I mean, obviously when you learn about something, uh, you know that's new to you. It may not be new at all to other people. That it's you know very well known. Um, <clears throat> and in the case of the the Bandung Conference, um, it's interesting. And I, I actually write about this in the new preface to the the second edition. That I think the the Bandung Conference is an event that people either you know, know extremely well, um, and what I mean by extremely well is is not necessarily that they know the facts uh, of the event very well, but they they know of the event itself um, to yeah. the point that it's become this mythological reference point.
1: Absolutely, um, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's like Christmas or something. It's like an yeah, origin exactly. story. It's, it's, it's like it's seen yeah,
0: as, yeah, absolutely. It's seen as this foundational moment. Um, it's seen as this uh, you know sort of lost utopian moment. Um, you know, but the upshot being that it's, it's been mythologized. Correct. Um, the second, the second, uh, you know, sort of approach to Bandung is that people just don't know anything. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I've, I've, uh, encountered that with other colleagues and, um, you know, people that I've spoken to. I think, I think, I think that's changed quite a bit actually over the past 10 years. Um, I think Bandung is much better recognized, at least within the academic community mm-hmm. than, you know, than you know, the early two thousands or, or even 2005, when I organized the event, I, the, the, the conference, uh, the, the workshop at the Stanford humanities center, I should say too quickly that the reason I did it in 2005 was to celebrate the, the 50th anniversary of the meeting. Right. Right. So that's why 2005 was important. Um, but the point being that you know uh, it, it it's it's one of these events that I think is important to some audiences and not others. Yeah, um, that leads to a second point. Um, it's interesting. The historiography of Bandung, I would argue, falls into basically two camps. Um, there's there's sort of a density of scholarship on Bandung during say really shortly after the meeting, so say like 1956, um, up through the mid-1960s. And then it sort of drops off, uh, not to say that, that there isn't any scholarship, but it becomes much more scattered. And then over the past 10 years, um, the scholarship has picked up tremendously. So essentially, there was this long period from, let's say, the mid-1960s until after 2000, that, you know, not many people were really uh, focusing on, on the Bandung conference. And so that was something else I came across when I was doing research on the event, that, you know, there were some scholars who were working on it, but, but really the start of uh, new research on Bandung, I would say, you know, is starting, you know, in, in the years just prior to the appearance of my book, um, so like around 2000, 2008. So, so another answer to this question about knowledge about Bandung, um, as an academic topic, it's, it's come in and out of focus. And mm-hmm. certainly today it's, you know, something that, uh, people recognize that's, that's taught more and so forth. And then, and, and, and yet a third answer to your, to your question, um, I should say, too, that I had a difficult time finding a publisher. Right. And what I mean by that is that most publishers, and I think this is largely true even up to today, is that, you know, they want to know, is this African studies or is this Asian studies? Mm -hmm. Is it Southeast Asian studies? And so when I approached publishers uh, with this project, they they didn't know what to make of it. And... So I think that in itself also says something about the politics of knowledge. Absolutely. You know, yeah, that up until, you know, fairly recently, there was a kind of hesitation about, you know, looking at issues like third worldism or, you know, the global South. And again, I think that's changed radically over the past 10 years. But when I was, you know, approaching publishers before 2010, um, yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of interest. Um, yeah, yeah that's,
1: that's interesting in terms of, just yesterday, um, there was a, a little webinar conference symposium in honor of Ian Randall Publishers, mm-hmm. which is a major, uh, publisher, independent publisher here in the Caribbean, the 30th anniversary. And okay. we were just talking about these very, this very, very, very subject. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, quite, uh, time you that you brought it up in that sense
0: yeah and i I, it was uh i mean you know publishers have their you know (laughs) budgets and audiences and so forth Mm -hmm. um that that limit the kind of um attention they can give to certain projects but but yeah I, i mean i'm obviously completely grateful that it did find a publisher and a very supportive publisher Um, And yeah, so the the reason for the second edition is precisely because the first edition sold so well. Um, There's still some copies of the first edition that you can find on Amazon, but effectively the the first edition has um, effectively sold out. So that's why uh, my editor at Ohio and I decided to bring out a second edition. It was also good, you know, I I should say too that, you know, as, as I mentioned, I provided a new preface. And a fairly substantial one, uh, about I don't know six or seven thousand words, and you know, sort of reflecting on the changes and uh, changes within the historiography on Bandung since since twenty ten. Were
1: any of the essays um, changed or updated in the second edition?
0: You know, that's a that's a great question because uh, the short answer is no. Mm -hmm. Um, The longer answer is that. Uh, when this option for a second edition came up, uh, I of course contacted the contributors and I said, "Look, you know, uh, we're we're looking to bring out a second edition. Would you like to make any changes?" And I had some response from some contributors, but at the end of the day, um, you know, the there were very few changes. Um, I made a few changes to the original introduction. Uh, in so far that, um, some of the, some of the information had dated a little, yeah. um, but it's interesting. I think that once you start, uh, fiddling with a, a manuscript, it's it, you sort of run into the temp- the temptation, at least I did the temptation of, of changing a lot of things. Yeah. And I think that ultimately that should be resisted yeah um, it might be different for other projects, but I came to the conclusion that, you know it's it's a book that was uh, published at a particular time. Um, I think that a lot of the a lot of the uh, contributions stand very well. Um, in fact, I, I had another contributor, a colleague who I, I really trust, and I asked him if he wouldn't mind, <laughs> you know, reading through the volume again. And he agreed to do that. And he came back to me and said, yeah, I think this this volume still stands. So you don't have to make any radical changes. So I did have, I did consult with people about that. Yeah. Um, but the upshot is that, you know, it's a document of a particular time. Yeah. Um, and I made it, like I said, I made a few changes in the introduction, particularly in relation to China-Africa relations, mm-hmm. um, which have been rapidly changing um, and frankly are hard to keep up with. Um, but beyond that, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's something that, um, resembles the first one, um, in many ways I should say too, that's, that's also precisely why I added a new preface and sought to make it substantial simply because, um, you know, it's, it's, it is, I've not, I haven't experienced this, this kind of situation before of, of doing a second edition, but it just seems sensible that if you're doing a second edition, um, to, you know, basically have something to say about, you know, the first and second editions, you know, what has changed, what, uh, what new books have been published, what, what, uh, what sort of arguments might have become cul-de-sacs or, or what, was missing from the first volume that could be added or touched upon. So, you know, I, I, the preface is both personal, but also, um, you know, provides a very condensed, um, summary of what the original intentions of the book were and, you know, what has changed since then and what sort of opportunities I think there are for research in the future.
1: Yeah, and I, I also think it speaks to something which you, you kind of mentioned in the book as well about um, that this is a, a kind of, uh, I don't know, a, an independent stream of discourse. And it kind of has its own rhythm life and life and whatnot and integrity. And yeah. it's not necessarily, uh, and, and, you know, one that has kind of been ignored as uh, by, um, by other scholarship but it, it, it has its sort of, uh, place and, and yeah, it's a rhythm, it's, and, and whatnot. And, and to disturb right. that, I suppose would be, <laughs> would be problematic. Yeah. Uh,
0: it, it becomes a different, a different thing. And I think, I mean, I've done a number of books since then this, and I should say, this is my first book. So, uh, and it's, so it's very special to me, in right. that sense. even though it's an edited book, it, I still consider it my first book. Um, and it's it's to say too that you know when you do something for the first time you're you're learning as you're doing it yeah. and so you know it took a lot of work um, I had the help of a lot of people and I I'd, I'd like to acknowledge them once again mm-hmm. uh, through this through this interview um, yeah. and I also you know just the contributors frankly you know having faith uh, in the project. Um, giving of their time and energy. Um, so, you know, it's it's uh, a particular document of its time. And, uh, uh, and, and I'm just glad that it's still still uh, getting readers.
1: Yeah, and, and the fact that, you know, it, it, it stood the test of time already in terms of 10 years without necessarily having the need for any revision, you know, anything substantial speaks, you know, speaks very well, speaks very well Um to the quality of the of the contributions you know and so yeah it would be something that you should be proud of as a first book for listeners you know who um who may not even understand uh this whole discussion of that we've been having why don't you just why don't we describe um uh what the bandung moment exactly is and what it is what what its importance is
0: okay of course um so i probably should have Yeah, Uh, started with that a bit, but okay. So effectively in April, 1955, um, there was a diplomatic conference in Bandung, Indonesia. And Bandung is this, uh, small city. It's kind of a college town, a university town that's outside of Jakarta, um, on the Island of Java. And, uh, 29 countries from Africa and Asia were invited to attend to send official delegations. Um, And it was hosted by Sukarno, the president of Indonesia. Uh, There were also uh, sort of regional powers. It was, it was the sponsors of the meeting were India, Pakistan, uh, Sri Lanka, uh, Burma, and um, Indonesia. And excuse me, and um, yeah, basically the, the idea was to have an international meeting to collect the interests of uh, colonial and, uh, or I should say, uh, late colonial or decolonizing countries. And those that had just relatively recently had become independent. So um, of course, countries like, like India and uh, Pakistan and Indonesia and so forth were independent. Um, but you had uh, you had countries in attendance like the Gold Coast, uh, which is today Ghana, um, still under the late uh, a late period of, of colonial control. Ghana would become independent in 1957. Um, so it was this period of of uh, you know change and transition in world politics, and you know a time of transition from you know, an age of empires to the post-colonial period. And and complicating this, this transition uh, was the Cold War. And effectively, the United States and the Soviet Union, um, you know, making inroads in different parts of, of Asia and eventually Africa. And so there was also concern about this, this new Cold War uh, rivalry that had been established and that was um, putting pressure um, on regional politics in different ways, um, perhaps the most obvious case being uh, Southeast Asia and, and the situation in Vietnam. Um, you had the Geneva Conference in 1954 that was you know, trying to resolve conflict in Southeast Asia. So the, the Bandung meeting can be seen as a response to uh, those uh, Western and European efforts to, to resolve the conflict in Southeast Asia. Um, it should be said, too, that North and, and South Vietnam did send delegations to Bandung as well. Um, so the point being that it was a diplomatic conference uh, that was intended to address uh, you know, emergent problems in the post-colonial world. And again, this is why I was fascinated with it as a historian. Um, that is to say that... Uh, you know, and again, this goes back in time to when I was a student, a lot of discussion about post-colonial studies uh, was effectively oriented around uh, post-colonial theory. And again, scholars like Edward Said, uh, but also Gayatri Spivak, uh, Homi Bhabha, um, you know, basically scholars working in literature departments. And mm-hmm. what was um, and, you know, not to diminish them. I mean, these are scholars who, who shaped me in a number of ways intellectually. But what was very clear is that post-colonial history, um, not theory, but history was, um, you know, neglected. And, you know, I don't want to necessarily overstate that. But, um, you know, I think that a lot of this again goes back to the historiography uh, situ- historiographical situation I was mentioning earlier, that, um, that you know, basically you had this uh, you know, unevenness in the literature. And I would say that with regards to post-colonial history, not many scholars in African studies had, I should say historians in African studies had dealt with it. Um, you certainly had uh, anthropologists and economists and political scientists dealing with post-colonial period but historians, for the most part, had been dealing with either the colonial period or the pre-colonial period. Um, and so, you know, I saw the Bandung conferences, you know, this clear event that was marking this transition to the post-colonial period. And that's, that's what also fascinated me. Uh, it, wasn't, um, it wasn't theoretical. Uh, it was, you know, very concrete. And you, I should say quickly, too, I mean, you had, um, you had these important figures. You had Jawaharlal Nehru, you had Sukarno, you had Gamal Nasser from Egypt, you had Zhou Enlai from the People's Republic of China. Um, perhaps the most famous or uh, beyond uh, heads of state, the most famous person to attend was the African-American novelist Richard Wright, um, who wrote the book The Color Curtain. Which was an account of the, the Bandung meeting, which came out in nineteen fifty six. Um, so, there is a certain spectacle aspect too to the Asian African Conference, and that also attracted me to it. Um, you know, trying to understand, uh, you know, the understand this moment, and that's actually precisely why I chose the 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 word moment and to include it in in the the title of the book. Um, basically, the idea being that um, you know specific events can uh, shape and define the period that comes after after it. And yeah. I was very interested in Bandung as being that kind of moment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, as you said, I mean, you, you spoke about different audiences, and and certainly from an American perspective, Richard Wright would have been the big person, but I mean, uh, you know, from an Indian perspective, it's Nehru, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, Nkrumah from the African, uh, well, well, he didn't actually go, he sent somebody, right. Uh, I was, but, um, but yeah, but, but I mean, you had, you know, Suk- Sukarno, you, you had the, the, the big superstars. I mean, they were like political superstars, um. Of of the decolonization movement around the world, you know, who fought Absolutely. British colonialism, who fought Dutch colonialism, who fought French colonialism, and you know, and and they were there, and um and and so for like us in the Caribbean, for example, we didn't get our independence until the sixties, right? Sixty right. two was Trinidad and Tobago and Jamaica, and. Uh, but you know, many—I mean, many people from the Caribbean inspired or were there. People like Emile Césaire, Frantz Fanon, and then you know, someone like Marcus Garvey would loom large in the background, uh, you know, sure. uh, historically and so forth. And and so it it really so and it it at least for for us uh, the, the mass of countries that you find in the United Nations now got their independence after Bandung and Bandung yes. was, was like a, a, a Philip to sort of like so you had your pioneers like India and and Indonesia and um, Egypt with Nasser and so forth and well Suez happened right after right. in 56 no. so, yeah. so it, 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 it sort of was a huge you know push for self-determination and independence and anti-colonialism. So, so it had this, this mythical m- moment as, as, as you rightly, you know, put put it there. And then even it was coming together, you know, um, Brown versus the board of education in the United States was yeah. happening at the same time. And Malcolm X, as, as you did mention in your book, I mean, drew on the Bandung uh, yeah. conference, right. Uh, and that, that was his model for the, uh, um, for his black nationalism. He was not a civil rights leader. He was inspired by Bandung, not by um, uh, civil rights discourse. And even in Trinidad and Tobago, you mentioned Eric Williams, who was our first prime minister, but was also yeah. a historian before with capitalism and slavery. Yeah. Um, with the party he founded, uh, the Bandung was, you know, he founded it in 56, and he, he referred to Afro-Asian solidarity because the two largest racial groupings here in Trinidad are Africans and Indians right. and you know to bring the groups together so so it it it, it has you know uh, been used as as a moment that's referred to over and over again in different contexts in terms of uh self-determination of unity against uh imperial exploitation and and, and so forth yeah and, well, what's- and it,
0: Go on. No, no. Well, I I didn't mean to interrupt, but I was just to add to what you're saying. I mean, yeah. I think that um, you know what's clear is that that Bandung has had a tremendous amount of mobility as a symbol. Yeah. And I think it's been, as you're pointing to, it's been uh, utilized um, by many different figures. And I, I I talk about this in my preface as well that you know people like. Um, Leopold Senghor or James Baldwin or, uh, or Malcolm X, um, you know, side Bandung as this, as this pivotal moment. And so, um, you know, I think, I think the thing here too, is that, um, you know, it is important to note that in looking at the, the composition of those who attended the Bandung meeting, that, uh, the, uh, constituencies did tilt towards Asia. Yeah, that um, the concerns at the meeting were very much defined by people like Joe Enlai of of China mm-hmm. and Nehru of India. Um, so at a certain level, the the African delegations were minor players. On the other hand, um, Afro the destiny of Afro Asianism, and we can talk about Afro as a as a discourse, but um, just for just for right now, Afro Asianism uh, as a as an ethos as as being part of the Bandung spirit. Um, and I should say too, the the conference did produce this uh, this <laughs> political feeling or this political optimism that was referred to as the Bandung spirit. Um, that that the Bandung spirit, that Afro Asianism, you know, quickly moved to, uh, to to the continent of Africa, and in fact, yeah. um, Nasser uh, was one of these figures who saw the potential in it and was uh, helped establish the Afro Asian People's Solidarity Organization that was based in Cairo. Um, you also had the the Afro Asian Writers Association being established, actually in Tashkent in Soviet Uzbekistan, uh, in Central Asia, also during the late 1950s, but, but the, the Afro-Asian Writers Association soon moved to Cairo. So you have all these uh, institutional formations um, that are embracing Afro-Asianism that are being uh, based, based in Africa. And certainly as the continent continued to decolonize Um, You know, you would have diplomatic meetings, you would have cultural meetings and cultural events that uh, displayed certain forms of Afro-Asianism, those events happening in sub-Saharan Africa. So I think that, you know, there's sort of two ways to think about the Bandung meeting. Um, And again, this is something I talk about in the book. I mean, one is to think of it as a singular meeting, as, you know, a diplomatic event that happened in April 1955. And that's it. Um, there, wasn't, th- th- there was an attempt to have a second meeting um, in Algiers in uh, 1965, but that, that collapsed for different reasons, um, in part due to the politics of Algeria at the time, but, but also due to the fact that you had this effectively a rivalry, um, a diplomatic fallout between, between uh, India and China. Um, of course, at that point, uh, Nehru had gone on to help establish the non-aligned movement in 1961 and non-alignment was very much his uh, you know his position, you know uh, uh, an idea and, and uh, political approach, diplomatic approach that he sought to cultivate. Um, so the point being that, that things were fast changing. on the other hand, um, you know, The kind of afro-asianism that bandung established in 55 i think continued at the popular level um, in different ways so again among writers within the afro-asian writers association or within cultural organizations that were associated with the afro-asian people's solidarity organization so you know in effect um it's important to make a distinction between uh diplomatic history and what I would argue uh, as being a kind of grassroots Afro-Asianism or a populist Afro-Asianism. Um, so while Afro-Asianism as a diplomatic approach uh, declined by the mid 1960s, and this is something that I, that I talk about in the book, I think it's also important to recognize that you had a continuation of a grassroots kind of Afro-Asianism on the ground. And I think the chapters that follow in the book, you know, touch upon this. And effectively, a lot of the contributors, excuse me, contributors to the book are social historians. And um, so, you know, that's something about the book, too, I should say quickly, uh, for readers who aren't, who, you know, haven't looked at it, is that um, the book, my book is and is not about Bandung. And what I mean by that is that. The introduction, I you know talk at length about the Bandung Conference and who was there, and you know uh, you know talk about it as an event, but the contributions that follow um, are looking more at the effects of Bandung rather than the meeting itself, and that's precisely the intention of the book to not just sort of uh, have a series of chapters that recapitulate you know what happened in Indonesia in 1955 but instead to embrace a kind of ripple effect and sort of see the, the, the ways in which the, the meeting had effects over the next several decades. And it's not to argue that all the situations or case studies in the book are directly tied to Bandung, but it's simply to point out how certain events or certain moments um, can have repercussions uh, well beyond their intentions. So it's 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 a book that that again tries to underscore South-South connections, tries to look at how this this event, um, you know, the singular event, even though it was a one-time uh, occasion, nonetheless had enduring effects in different ways, and so that's what the book tries to get at. It tries to to work between. Uh, you know, this level, uh, uh, or you could even say genre of diplomatic history. And then um, this, you know, other genre of history, which we could say is socio-cultural history. You know, how did these diplomatic meetings have effects on the ground? And how did, uh, you know, the ideas and discourse of Afro-Asianism make its way to, you know, different parts of the world, different parts of the African continent? And so that was, that was very much a concern for me. And I should say quickly that it's also reflecting my own training. Um, I was trained as a sociocultural historian. Um, and so, you know, my, my interest in Bandung is, is perhaps then a, a different kind of approach, you know, trying to do uh, or pay respect to diplomatic history, but also trying to connect diplomatic history with uh, a kind of sociocultural political history. And you know, bridge that gap. Um, that was very important to me. So, uh, yeah, I feel like I answered <laughs> those. Yeah, yeah. Um, a, a long answer to to the questions that you were raising, but um, you know, just to go back to the symbolic importance of the of the conference itself. Yeah, it had a lot of symbolic capital, and we've seen that symbolic capital reemerge even today. Um, you know, I think that. You know, the, the phenomenon of China-Africa relations since yeah. roughly 2000. Um, I think the, you know, the BRICS, you know, the Brazil, Russia, India. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that formation. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't want to say that these recent developments are tied to Bandung. Um, but I will, but, but, but I do think they're, they're, they're all part of a particular history. Uh, I, mean,
1: I I I would say that yeah. they definitely are tied to Bandung. I, okay. I, I see it, I, I
0: as sure. as you say
1: rightly that you know the um, Bandung um, uh, you know inspired uh, many social movements and and artists and, and etc on the ground. And although it did fizzle out as in as an institution of that name uh, I, I certainly believe the non-aligned movement and then, you know, uh, was continuing that spirit of, you know, sure. well, look, we're independent now. Why should we be part of the Soviet bloc or the um, capitalist bloc or NATO or the West? Um, you know, we're, we need to have our own um, military and economic system and formation, etc. And then later on for calls for the new international economic order, Sure. And uh, and that leads uh, to me right up to to the bricks, um, yeah. to to the bricks, and then the bricks leads to the Belt and Road Initiative, and and it le- I I think I think that this this whole uh, and even all the debates about China in Africa, and unfortunately, which in uh, even in you know Africa, Latin America, the Caribbean. Uh, We've fallen for that anti-China Western narrative, right. instead of seeing this as part of of the continuation of the Bandung spirit, that Bandung moment, and 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 maybe you, you can relate it to this, and and it probably relates to what you were talking about before in terms of the the lacune that that period where where there wasn't much talk about Bandung, because about in this. 80s, like the Reagan-Thatcher era, the neoliberalism, yep. the fall of the import substitution models, and and and, and the rise of, of the market, the fall of the Soviet Union, all these things um, sort of d- dissolved the idea of third world nationalism. Then, mm-hmm. of course, there were so many fighting, uh, you know, there's wars, military conflicts, skirmishes right. between countries of the south. So this whole idea of you know solidarity in the third world. Um, you know uh, uh just didn't seem realistic and then even the term third world itself kind of lost its dignity Absolutely. and it just became a pejorative term as some as a poor backward country yeah whereas really it, it was supposed to be just like the term monde in in the french yeah. revolution the you know yeah. revolutionary class outside of it so perhaps you might want to uh you know elaborate on that for us
0: yeah sure so yeah i mean the you know, during the nineteen fifties, um, and and particularly, I, I should say that that uh, the term Third world" was uh, initially proposed in nineteen fifty two, and actually, VJ Prashad, uh, another scholar, he's he's now. Uh, more of a journalist um, but he he taught at trinity college for a number of years he wrote a book called the darker nations
1: mm-hmm.
0: that that came out in 2007 um, and then wrote another book called the poorer nations which is is sort of a sequel dealing with with um dealing with development and the new international economic order um, but the upshot is that you know one of the arguments that he makes and and i also you know make in in, in my book is that yeah, during the 1950s, Third World um, actually did have a certain dignity, was about power, um, was about you know, pushing against the first and second worlds, that is to say, Western liberal democracies and the, the, Soviet, the Soviet bloc. And um, combined with that uh, was you know, effectively the, the tremendous amount of political energy and optimism that existed with decolonization um, yeah. that, you know, all of these countries becoming independent. Um, and this carried over into the 1960s. Um, you know, you had a lot of, uh, you know, energy from leaders like Kwame Nkrumah, um, Julius Nerere, um, Gamal Nasser, um, you know, leaders who, who, you know, were effectively trying to change world politics in a way that hadn't been seen before, and mm-hmm. I think it, I think it's really important to understand that. Of course, it's also important to to recognize the ways in which, um, again, the United States and and other Western countries and and <clears throat> to some extent the Soviet Union basically intervened in that 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 situation um, yeah. and effectively sought to decapitate um, a lot of the the. Uh, the the leadership that was being established the energy that was being established and so forth so you know the coup that Nkrumah experienced um the assassination of Patrice Lumumba um you know you have these very specific instances of
1: I I can give you an example here yeah go ahead please like for example okay as you said Eric Williams um yeah uh Led uh, led our independence party here in the Caribbean, and but he quickly became criticized by by the younger generation uh, to you know, emerging the Black Power movement. Stokely Carmichael is Trinidadian, and when he went up to the states, um, right. he coined the Black Power movement. But it it, it had. Um, uh, its own components here, which is interesting because it was a black government that the black power movement was against. And they were calling it neo-colonial, neo-imperial. And and we, we had this new world group, which, which I consider myself a, a, a part of, and um, where they uh, critiqued the um, you know, the, 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 standard establishment independence movements and said they didn't go far enough and that they were actually reproducing colonialism, et cetera. And so, and, and they were trying to establish, uh, like the non-aligned movement and uh, very much in line with that, some, uh, our own Caribbean economy, our own Caribbean sort of ideology, sociology, right. ways of thinking, ways of being, et cetera. And, and the Cold War kind of intervened and, the Soviets, in in a sense, intervened first. In the sense that many of those people engaged in that critique eventually were became Marxists and socialists and and whatnot. And then you had the Manleys and the the um, uh, the the chords and and uh, in Grenada, uh, Maurice Bishop and so forth. And then that sort of drew us into the Cold War, which which really threw things off course. And then later, when Thatcher and Reagan came. And yep. then all this funding, so so a lot of the, uh, as you say, uh, a lot of the enthusiasm uh, was, you know, was undermined by one the poor performance uh, of independent countries, sometimes corruption, dictatorship, uh, you know, sometimes you know a kind of uh, things not changing as much as as people thought, and then the whole right. neoliberalism and the the undermining. Uh, of this idea of nationalism and the idea and even later on things like postmodernism modernism uh, and and the critique of the nation state and, and a lot of these things post i I think of post-colonial studies as a as a w- way of undermining the Bandung spirit actually uh, in in my yeah. view I, I I don't know if, if you would uh, agree I, with that or not
0: you know it's that's an interesting question uh you know, obviously post-colonial studies is a big field and I, you know, I, I, I don't want to overgeneralize. I will yeah. say that, you know, if you go back and reread, uh, culture and imperialism yeah. uh, by Edward Said, he definitely, uh, towards the end of that book is pushing a kind of third world project. Yes. Yeah. And I think, I mean, maybe that's unsurprising. Said was, you know, obviously very insightful and, um, you know, had a firm grasp of so many things. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think, but I will say that that particular part of his work, I think, wasn't, uh, paid attention to,
1: That's right. or
0: it wasn't, uh, or he didn't develop it, um, as much. And I think, you know, I think there, there are different reasons for that too. I think that when cultural imperialism came out, which, I think it was 1992 or 1993, but, but definitely the early 90s. Yeah, I think um, it was
1: 1990, wasn't it? But sorry? anyway, it may have been 1990, if I'm not mistaken, but whatever.
0: Yeah, I think I think it was a few years after. But, right. but anyway, I mean, it's around that time and basically the end of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, you know, third worldism as an idea, um, as a platform, um, was very much a Cold War one. And I think that, you know, perhaps he didn't develop it simply because, you know the, you know to go, actually to go back to a pottery you know it was this time where people thought the cold war uh i mean the cold war was over but people were thinking you know we're in a new period and you don't have to think about yeah we don't
1: have to think
0: about, the the, yeah, to think about these these old binaries anymore yeah. and i i think that you know that might be one reason why he moved away from it i think mm-hmm. i think what what's what's become clear and uh and you know this is a point that that scholars like like BJ Prashad have made, but also uh, you know diplomatic historians like Arne Westad, who wrote a, another important book called The Global Cold War, um, that you know basically we're still living with the effects of 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 the Cold War and of decolonization, um, and in some ways of Third Worldism. The whole rhetoric of the Global South is an attempt to you know sort of revive these projects and. You know, I, I will say that um, I am critical. I, I am critical of some aspects of it. That is to say, I think of, of by aspects I mean sort of uh, recent uses of of Bandung or third worldism, like the you know the BRICS um, configuration. You know, people talk about you know it, it, it being neoliberalism with southern characteristics yeah um and I think that's that's true I think that we have to be very wary of um the appropriation of past political symbols that were radical in intention and sort of repackaging them as some kind of um, uh, tool for legitimating uh current projects in our world today um so so you know just as a scholar i'm I'm wary of this but I but I do agree with what you were saying earlier about how China-Africa relations have been framed. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I certainly think that uh, you know these are, you know, there is an element of power within them, and you know, China, uh, you know, is a powerful country, and um, it's it's I don't I don't think the relations it has with specific African countries are always you know very well balanced. But having said that, I mean, I think a lot of the, I think a lot of the scholarship, at least the sort of early scholarship, particularly in political science, were, you know, sort of pointing to this development as something to be feared, um, mm-hmm. you know, pointing to, uh, you know, sort of framing China as a menace, as as a new colonial power, and I think those sorts of framings neglect. Uh, again the kind of afro-asianism that emerged that you know one reason for african countries to reach out to china or to feel comfortable with um, you know diplomatic relations and and you know trade agreements with china is because of this preceding history where um you know china um, was very uh, involved in the post-colonial affairs of african countries and so yeah. you know one chapter in my book is about Um, that Jamie Monson, who's at Michigan State University, um, she wrote a chapter on the Tazara Railway that um, was a Chinese development project, uh, building a railway um, from Zambia to uh, Tanzania. And, you know, so you have those sort of Cold War projects, um, development projects, uh, between China and um, African countries that, you know, we could see as a precursor to contemporary um, Developments. So, um, you know, I, I I don't want to idealize China-Africa relations, but on the other hand, I don't think it's helpful to repackage, you know, present-day politics as a quote-unquote new scramble for Africa. I, yeah. think, I think that is, I think that's neglecting a lot of history, uh, post-colonial history. And I think that it, it's also kind of repackaging a very old model to understand the present. And it also, you know, it, it also puts, you know, the African continent into another position of victimization. Correct. And and I think that robs, you know, African governments, African leaders of their own agency. And,
1: and, if, I, I, and I think it neglects the, the fact that over the past two decades... The fastest growing economies in the world by uh, have been African countries, and yeah. that, that fact has been totally ignored for twenty years. That sub-Saharan Africa has been some have been in the top ten fastest growing economies consistently for the past twenty years, and yeah. and this is something. Not to be sneezed at at all. I mean, th- this is something incredibly important to um, to the continent, sure. and and the fact that that this has has not you know really been um, you know taken into account. And I, I think that a lot of that has to do with its partnership with China as opposed to to the West. Um, that's my view. I don't know if if you agree with that.
0: Yeah. No. I, I mean, I think that um, I mean certainly. Trade relations with China have, um, you know, benefited a number of African countries. I think that certainly China has benefited too. And I don't want to overlook the fact that, I mean, some of these agreements have put African workers and African farmers um, at a disadvantage. So I think I think it is important to make a distinction between, you know, the political leaders and governments that are making agreements and, and the effects on the ground. So again, I don't want to idealize it, yeah. but on the other hand, I think I think you're right. It is important to understand that, um, you know, this this sort of tacit or latent uh, framework that China is menacing, but the West isn't, I think, is you know deeply flawed. Yeah, and, yeah. and it also, you know, I mean, it just just one quick thing too. <laughs> I realize we've gone far afield from. From 1955 and that yeah. London Conference, but, but I mean, actually you... I don't think so because I, well.
1: <laughs> I the fulfillment of it. I, yeah. I think that, that the world that the world economy is dominated now by Asian countries, yeah, and that this this Afro-Asian um, partnership, which is uh, being very very uh, looked upon very askance by the former imperial powers, I, I think this has yeah. everything to do with 1955. From
0: yeah, I mean. Well, I mean, just to build on that, I mean, this is in a sense, precisely, you know, in a sense, the kind of point that I was making that, you know, it, the book is about the 1955 moment, but, mm. but it's, I'm also trying to use the the Asian African conference as a way of opening up this broader horizon and this uh, broader way of seeing things, um, seeing, uh, not just Asian and 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 African relations or history, but also you know sort of thinking about you know how do we decenter global history away from the West? How do we you know move global history and its center and peripheries to a location like uh, Indonesia? To you know instead of emphasizing the Atlantic world, you know thinking more carefully about the Indian Ocean world, mm-hmm. and certainly that's been um, picked up in a number of ways. Um, and that I should say too, I mean, it, it, you know, that, that emphasis was also, you know, preceded, preceded, uh, my book, but I, but, but, you know, just quickly, I, 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 think that, um, again, this goes back to my student days, but, you know, reading the black Atlantic by Paul Gilroy, Yeah. you know, it's a pivotal book. Um, mm-hmm. and I love, uh, Paul Gilroy's scholarship, um, throughout throughout his work. And I've, you know, he's, I've, I've learned a tremendous amount from reading him, but, but that book also is very much about the Atlantic world. Yeah. And so when I was, one of the other things that attracted me to the, the Bandung meeting was that, you know, it, it was pointing to another, uh, alternative modernity, another context, another place where connections were emerging and mm-hmm. another kind of cosmopolitanism. And so, you know, one of the intentions with this book was, um, you know, not just to speak to people interested in the Cold War or diplomatic history or people interested in decolonization, but also speaking to scholars in, in the field of African studies and say, look, you know, we can't just, you know, think about the Atlantic world. We have to think about the Indian Ocean world and, and not just the Indian Ocean world of the you know the 18th and 19th centuries, which there has been a lot of work on, but also the 20th century. Yeah, and you know, thinking about you know these these uh, transoceanic relations that you know originally founded on um, you know very similar to the Atlantic world in the sense of you know slavery being important. Um, it's also important to think about you know the the kind of relations that emerged um, you know during the mid 20th century and after. So I I think the thing about you know Bandung about China-Africa relations today. Um, it's also important simply to say the to emphasize the importance of of the Indian Ocean world, and you know sort of situate Bandung against that backdrop. And um, there's been a lot of fascinating work on on the Indian Ocean world over the past twenty years or so, and I've I've learned a lot, and you know I hope. I hope this book has contributed in some way to that, um, yeah, that scholarly discourse as well. Absolutely. There,
1: there's um, there's another issue that I'd I'd like you to to comment on. It, um, <laughs> sure. Because uh, the for me, you know, as as someone inspired by the Bandung uh, moment, as 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 a third world nationalist myself. Um, you know i i've i've seen that as a pivotal moment in anti-imperialism theory and practice um and yeah. and that um the the rise of nationalism uh, around the world in the united states and europe i i have found that fascinating because um while while it's being uh, you know demonized for its xenophobia and uh, anti-immigrant stances and so forth, uh, understandably, but but they 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 have this anti-globalist discourse, which to me is almost identical to the anti-imperialist discourse in so many ways, uh, in terms of the de-industrialization, in terms of the sort of uh, you know the the. The um, the global uh, you know financial exploitation and in, in terms of the the undermining of, of national identity and I I, I really uh, you know and even down to Trump. Wanting to disband NATO, uh, right. the G seven, um, you know, criticizing the FBI and CIA. I mean, th- these are things that, as third world nationalists, I mean, it's music to my ears. <laughs> Honestly, I, you know, I just I can't believe an American president would ever say these things. It, it's yeah. just, it's, it's quite amazing, and, and I am, I am just I- intrigued by all of that, but. But I know that you know people up in, uh, especially liberals and the left and socialists and others in in Europe and uh, uh, the United States and so forth are so hostile against it. But but it's as if you know uh, they don't even see this aspect, which I think is so so important. And to me, again, it ties into the Bandung moment. But I I don't know how, how do you see that? I'd be interested.
0: Well, I mean, though you just raised a lot of issues. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think that. Um, I mean, uh, I mean, my own, in truth, my own politics, I would say are anti-nationalist. Right. And what I mean by that is that I'm, I, I identify with being more of an internationalist, um, or, or you could say cosmopolitan, but, um, you know, there's certain genealogies for these terms. So, um, cosmopolitanism tends to be more of a liberal, Approach internationalism tends to be more of a, an approach on the left, yeah. And um, so I, I lean towards uh, internationalism, but you know to go to so w- which uh, you know to go to the 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 Bandung moment. I mean, it's it's important to emphasize that you know the kind of third world solidarity that was being forged there. Um, you know, certainly there was a a, a, a solidarity a sense of um, common purpose um, you did have a final communique you did have a statement of certain principles um, but it's also important to keep in mind that you know countries had their own interests mm-hmm. and I think that you know it, it's important to see the the meeting as having both of those qualities that you know there was this uh, sense of Collegiality and common purpose, but there was also, you know, certain ambitions that individual leaders had. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to just give two examples, or to give three examples, um, Zhou Enlai of the People's Republic of China, I mean, he was very concerned about the legitimacy of China. Um, and that might sound odd to us now, but um, you know, at the time during the mid-1950s, uh, the United Nations hadn't recognized the People's That's no, right. the United Nations hadn't recognized the People's Republic of China yet. Yeah, um, the UN recognized uh, Taiwan as Correct. the legitimate China. So and the
1: United States did as well.
0: Yeah, as and 52. of course, the, yeah, of course, the United States you know didn't recognize the PRC. So the point being that Joe and Lai was very, and you know, this also speaks to Joe and uh you know, savvy and um, ability as, as a leader, you know, sought to, and, you know, representing Mao Zedong, um, you know, trying to, you know, get China, um, you know, have China recognized by its regional neighbors and, um, uh, you know, having, you know, that, um, having that ambition at Bandung. Um, Nehru, on the other hand, uh, you know had his own sets of ambitions and you know it's 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 important to note that that uh you know nehru promoted non-alignment but not all of the countries at at Bandung um, embraced non-alignment mm-hmm. um, effectively non-alignment was an idea a diplomatic approach that was still building uh still build, building momentum there wasn't agreement on it it's really not until 1961 um, and the, the meeting of non-aligned countries in, in Belgrade, Yugoslavia, that, that, non-aligned, that the non-aligned movement came into being. And that's, that's actually something about, it's important to emphasize that simply because it's, there's a myth that the non-aligned movement started at, at Bandung and that's not, that's not quite true. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't even a fait accompli, it was something that was still in gestation. Um, So in any case, Nehru nonetheless sought to promote um, this idea of non-alignment at at the Asian-African Conference, and then to take a third example, um, Gamal Nasser. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, he was very young. He was 37 years old uh, Mm -hmm. when he went to Bandung, and you know, he was he was very popular um, in in Egypt. Um, for having led the Free Officers movement that that led to this change of government uh, just a few years earlier in Egypt, but even though he he might have had a certain level of of clout in Egypt, you know he didn't have international standing. Um, and it wasn't until he went to Bandung and actually met leaders um, that you know he really started to gain the stature that he he you know. He he had ever since, Um, and that you know you know today, Nasser is still a huge figure, Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean certainly the Egyptian leader of the 20th century.
1: Absolutely, Um,
0: but it but you know prior to 1955, that wasn't really the case, and certainly with the Suez Crisis in 1956, um, that you know very much solidified his standing. So, the upshot is that the the you know the Bandung Conference while there was this uh, atmosphere of solidarity, that you did have individual leaders with their own ambitions, their own situations, and their own uh, national agendas. And so, you know, my take on on the question of nationalism and and Bandung is that, um, yeah, certainly it fostered uh, third world nationalism, um, but it's important to keep in mind that, you know, not all nationalisms got along with each other. Um, And certainly we see that in the case of India and China, uh, particularly particularly by 1962 with the Sino-Indian War. Um, So, you know, that's the thing about nationalism is that it's, uh, you know, in in its positive sense, clearly it can bring about a sense of political community. Um, In its negative sense, it can, you know, be a politics of exclusion. And um, a politics that you know doesn't seek to get along with um, with other people, other countries, and as we and you know so moving to the present, um, which you touched upon, um, yeah, I mean we've seen the rise of uh, certain forms of nationalism in global politics today that uh, is effectively a kind of political racism, um, a kind of uh, situation where. In the United States, you have, um, you know, stricter and stricter, you know, restrictions on immigration. Um, You've had the setup of um, basically incarceration camps for, uh, you know, people trying to cross the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, It's a terrible situation. And, uh, yeah, so nationalism definitely has its negative side. Uh, I think I think you know. Again, going back to the the Bandung meeting, um, we you know obviously don't see that kind of uh, that kind of negativity, um, but you know it's it's also important to to recognize that you know that that nationalism is an is an active uh, politics. It's an active process. In many cases uh, in Africa. But I would also argue in Asia, um, and we see this in India today, um, that, you know, know, we can see nationalism, say, starting with anti-colonialism in different ways, but nationalism also is very much a project of the post-colonial state. And so post-colonial nationalism wasn't about uh, fighting an external power like the British or the French or the Portuguese. But post-colonial nationalism was very much about cleansing, or purging, or exterminating people within nations that weren't uh, people within nations who weren't seen as part of the nation, and so this has led to you know situations of post-colonial violence that um, I think are very tragic. So. Uh, yeah anyway those are my immediate answers
1: you you've mentioned edward saeed a couple of times in his culture imperialism and definitely those are issues he touched upon in that book yeah absolutely
0: and also mahmoud mamdani um is is a good figure for thinking about these issues um certainly the rwandan genocide is is an example of this kind of politics Mm -hmm. um so when victims become killers um but also uh citizen and subject t- touches upon these, these issues. And again, I, sh- I should say quickly that it's, it's not to say that colonialism is, ab- is absolved. In fact, one of the important aspects of, of Mamdani's work is pointing to the, the ways in which uh, colonialism structured um, this kind of situation of, of uh, post-colonial ethnic nationalism that, that could lead to situations of mass violence.
1: Yeah, 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 and 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 just to um, uh, to clarify for listeners too, I mean Edward Said was a Palestinian nationalist. Yes, uh, but, but he was sensitive. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, as one must always be to the yeah. dangers of 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 every ideology, whether it be socialism, ideal uh, nationalism, capitalism, whatever it is, uh, you know, liberalism. That uh, that there are these uh, always undersides um, to to all of these ideas. I, I wanna, uh, as we um, move to the close of our interview, uh, <laughs> what would you like readers of your book uh, to come away with regarding the Bandung moment?
0: Gosh, that's, uh, that's a big question. Well, certainly, you know, one of the intentions, I guess this, this goes back to a certain extent to what I touched upon earlier. Um, but, you know, I mean, again, going back to 2005, going going back to 2010, when I was, you know, working on the book and then publishing it, um, to be quite honest, I, I didn't know how it would be received. Um, I, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't really a clear indication to me that there was an immediate audience for it. Yeah. And, and yet it has found an audience. And so I'm very grateful for that. I think that, you know, for, for people who haven't read the book, Um, you know, there's sort of maybe two basic things that I hope readers come away with. And the first one is obviously the importance of the meeting, um, that, you know, I think, I think that even though there's still debate about its importance and some people say that, you know, is extremely important. And then there are other, other scholars who say, oh, well, it's just a one-time thing. It isn't that important. Um, obviously I fall into the camp or, or I should say I fall somewhat in between where, yeah, I think it's important. I think, you know, it should be a part of, um, our understandings of world history since, uh, since the, the, since the second world war. Um, so I certainly hope readers, uh, you know, come to appreciate, um, the importance of the meeting and then following that, uh, you know, I hope too, that, you know, readers, do get a concrete sense of it um not the mythology but but a- an actual sense of the historical record and then and then extending from that you know just understanding that even though it was a one time event that um as we've discussed that it's ev- it's effects have uh rippled out in different ways and i think that you know there's new scholarship that's that's been coming out that's I've you know been really excited by and have been interested to read. Um, I think there are other third world histories that are being talked about, other kinds of Afro Asianism um, that are looking at places like Soviet Central Asia, um, that are looking at uh, and other kinds of third worldism, places like Havana, Cuba. Um, so it's you know the I guess I hope. That you know, first-time readers to this book will do as well. And this is something I briefly touch upon in the the preface. Is that you know, I, I hope that readers come away with this idea of, of the Third World as as being a very positive project, and you know, consisting a number consisting of a number of cities um, and sites, not just Bandung, Indonesia, but you know, Cairo, uh, you know, Accra, um, Dar es Salaam, Havana. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are all these other sites for, for thinking about um, third worldism and its history. And I hope that, that you know, readers will, will recognize that. Um, I should say one, one other quick thing, too. I mean, it is an edited volume. And I think that, you know, for this kind of event, I think having multiple contributions and different points of view from different scholars is actually quite crucial um, there are many different narratives to the Bandung Conference. So if you were to pick you know, China, that would lead to one kind of narrative. Or if you were to you know, look at Asian countries, that's another kind of narrative. There are all these different, it's, it's very much an intersectional moment.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I think this collaborative approach, um, this you know, having different perspectives um, was actually quite fruitful. For you know, touching upon a number of different issues and not reducing Bandung to a single narrative, which in many ways I think would just not be very useful. Yeah, um, it, it its effects go off in so many different directions, and um, again, that's what fascinated me about it. So
1: yeah yeah you're right i mean i mean didn't in this discussion we didn't even speak about the the muslim world and whatnot and oh yeah and, <laughs> yeah exactly you can just go on and on forever yeah but i i, I want to uh you know thank thank you for that that's great are there any other projects that you're working on at present that you'd like our audience to know about
0: well i i am working on i should say that that uh just briefly i mean since doing this project um i've continued to uh uh work on decolonization um in the cold war period and I I did a biography of um Franz Fanon that ah. came out yeah that came out in twenty fifteen so the Caribbean has also been in my mm-hmm. uh been of great interest to me. Um but I've I've also uh I did a book on uh the colonial politics of Zimbabwe and, and Zambia and Malawi. Uh, that book came out in 2014. It's called Unreasonable Histories. It's about race and identity um, in that part of, of Southern Africa during during the colonial period. Um, I have a I, I've been doing a lot of work actually on a South African writer and novelist uh, named Alex LaGuma. Um, he was a member of the South African Communist Party, mm-hmm. um, and he also uh, somewhat late in his life became the secretary general of the Afro-Asian Writers Association, which I mentioned earlier in the interview. And um, so he was very much a promoter of, of Afro-Asianism as a, as a cultural approach. And again, within his work, there's this tension between nationalism and internationalism, as you might expect with him being Uh, South African, but also a communist. Mm -hmm. And so I have a volume of his writings coming out next year. Um, It's a big volume uh, of his exile writings. Um, Yeah, he was was imprisoned in South Africa for different periods. He left with his family in 1966. And long story short, he first went to London and then Havana, Cuba. And he died in Cuba in 1985 at, at the age of 60 um, from a heart attack. Um, undoubtedly part of the stress of being a political activist and being in, in, in exile. And so I've been to Cuba a couple of times. Um, I found his grave and anyway, I have this book of his writings coming out, um, next year. It's called culture and liberation exile writings, 1966 to 1985. It's a big book. It's it's, it'll be over 600 pages long. Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's 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 very much a book that I've worked on quite hard, and I hope it'll be of interest to scholars again because it speaks to these issues of third worldism, uh, the anti-apartheid struggle, uh, the Soviet Union, uh, so communist internationalism, but then also um, you know Afro Asianism. He was he was a very engaged writer and thinker, so I hope that finds an audience. Um, and then just very briefly, I've also finished another book that's coming out next year on Kwame Anthony Appiah, um, the Ghanaian, uh, American mm-hmm. philosopher, um, very different projects in a sense, very different politics. Um, but that's also what attracted me to it. Um, I'm, I'm starting to look at, uh, a later period, um, and clearly Anthony Appiah is still alive. So, you know. I guess I'm approaching the present, too. But I'm interested in uh, the politics of the 1970s and 1980s. And um, Anthony Appia fits into that. So um, anyway, projects continue, and I'm, I'm very busy. So Excellent. hopefully we can talk about those other books at a later time.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It sounds like you're doing amazing work. Well, thank well, you. I- I want to thank you so much for this interview. It's been really informative and enjoyable. And we could have had a better topic to begin this series on third world nationalism. It's been a pleasure.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Kirk. I really really enjoyed talking and I hope I answered your questions.
1: Yes, yes, you did. And once again, the book is Making a World After Empire, the Bandung Moment and its Political Afterlives. And we've been speaking to the editor, Christopher Lee. Thank you also to you, our listeners. Make sure you sign up for our notifications so you don't miss any new interviews on this channel in the future. And I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.